Hello and welcome to Conversations. It's our opportunity to introduce you to some of the investment experts we work with and discuss a range of investment concepts and outcomes of interest to you and your clients. This series is focusing on silver linings and today's conversation examines how responsible investing adds value for investors. Is the consideration of environmental, social and governance factors of itself a silver lining? And does this translate to better investment outcomes? Today, I'm joined by GSFM CEO Damien McIntyre and Mike Harut, Munro Partners Responsible Investment Manager. Before I hand over, I need to read this important notice. The information contained in this podcast is general and does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. The information and views contained in this update reflects, as of the date of recording, the current opinions of the participants and are subject to change without notice. Before making any investment decision in relation to a fund, investors should consider the appropriateness of this information, having regard to their own objectives objectives, financial situation and needs, and read and consider both the product disclosure statement and any additional information. GSFM Responsible Entity Services has produced a target market determination in relation to all of the GSFM funds. The TMD sets out the class of persons who comprise the target market for the various funds, which can be downloaded from our website. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday, the 23rd of May, 2023. Damo and Mike, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Tracy, and welcome to all of our listeners today. The purpose of our Silver Linings podcast series is really to share the insights of our funds management or portfolio management partners in an attempt to provide insights to you to use with your clients. Hopefully, these discussions that we've been having over many months now and across really all the asset classes have proven to benefit to you. Today is probably one of our most different conversations and one I'm really looking forward to. Mike, I wonder if you could just, before we get going, just take us down the road of your career mm-hmm. and so your give back to the industry by lecturing to students on the topic of ESG. So can you just quickly share with us your career path and also what you're giving industry directly? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, my, my background is essentially I had a standard quote unquote academic background in terms of I studied commerce and law at uni. It was through a bit of an accident that I initially ended up in ESG, but it's something that I've been working in for over 10, close to 11 years now. Most of that is has been with working with the Australian superannuation funds. So what they do is that they collaborate when it comes to ESG to some degree. So when they want to engage with companies, a super fund by themselves only has a relatively small amount of influence and then but then if they kind of work together given that they have the same concerns around the, the long-term ESG issues they can collaborate and so I was involved in some of those collaborations I also worked at the future fund which is obviously Australia's sovereign wealth fund for just under two years but I guess going back to your question when I was at university I did six years of uni and I did three sets of CFA after that and it was interesting sort of reflecting on the fact that despite the growth of ESG and you know, the underlying topics such as climate change there was really nothing in my education that had anything to do with ESG. You know, the CFA is a giant list of huge books that you have to go through and there's literally nothing in there about ESG. So a colleague from the industry and I we approached Melbourne Uni to say, hey, maybe we can contribute something here because it had, really has been a really a practitioner-led movement. I don't know if that's the right word. We sort of felt that that was the opportunity for us to, you know, in a way, kind of give back and share some of what we, we've learned actually on the ground talking to some of these companies about what they're doing. And so, yeah, now, now we run a course called Sustainable Investments 
conference at the University of Melbourne. Five weeks of that is lectured by me and a colleague. And yeah, it has many benefits, hopefully, towards attracting more you know, smart young people into the investments and into ESG. And yeah, one thing which I'm personally very happy to share is that one of the analysts which we've recently added into the team at Munro, Jean, she was one of the students that did the subject uh, last year. So it's great to have her joining the team. And I marked her assignment and I thought that she did a fantastic job of it. And when the time came to hire an analyst, suggested her to the uh, to our team here. Oh, congratulations. I think that's fantastic. I mean, fortunately, in my career, I've also observed people, from, uh, people I've interacted with professionally, kept an eye on them, and then at the right time, the moon's aligned and I was able to bring them to businesses that I've worked with over my career, and it's great to see them develop. It's important. So go you for, you know, spotting talent amongst your students and then being in the position where you can broaden their careers later on. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was certainly more than I could have hoped for in terms of, in terms of that, and I think, you know, hopefully many opportunities to come in that space because within the investment industry, people with these sorts of interests and hopefully skill sets over time is certainly growing. Now, when I look at the world of ESG and responsible investment, I sort of view the world through two lenses. One lens is the commercial animal in me that sees the demographic trends of people wanting to invest in line with their preferences at a very base level. To the extent that they are, is remains to be seen. I think the runway for those people to achieve their ambition is huge. I just think the industry today is bereft of, of the right vehicle, right products to allow them to do that. On the other hand, I'm also a direct and I, ha- I wear a compliance hat, which is sort of counterintuitive to commercial aspects of my brain. But, and one thing that I'm incredibly mindful of, because I don't want to get sued, is that we have to be sincere about the representations we make about products. And we have to be sincere about being true to label. Yes. So in the world of ESG and socially responsible investment, it, it's unclear at the base level. So where, where do you see it today? And, and what do you see as its future? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think there are many aspects to it. Probably one of the key things that, to your second point around being true to true to label and being clear about what you are and what you aren't doing, I think what's important for people to be clear about is their actual underlying motivation. Yes. So from our perspective at Munro, we integrate ESG into our process and it's part of our company valuations and we engage with the companies and so forth. The motivation for that is primarily because we think it improves our long-term investment returns. I think some of the potential uh, demographic changes that you talked about and the investors in funds that have a particular ESG lens, I think sometimes what they're looking for is an approach which is exclusionary, which align, they only invest in the things that align with their values. And so to some degree at Munro, we offer that to some degree in that we have a, a climate change leaders fund, which invests in climate change opportunities. I think, you know, for us, part of the challenge there is obviously being clear about the fact that, yes, whilst these companies are deriving their revenues from climate opportunities, there could be some other wrinkles that may not align with their particular ethical or other viewpoint. But I think the industry sometimes doesn't necessarily help itself especially in the, in this in this world where as you say there's there's ESG integration there's stewardship there's impact there's socially responsible investment and all these sorts of elements and I think we need to sometimes be more transparent with the uh, in public or the investing community around what it involves and just to give you one example which we sometimes sort of struggle with is for our funds we generally don't have many negative exclusions so we don't we don't invest in tobacco we don't invest in controversial weapons but that's about it really that's for, about, for, it. That's yeah. about it for our main funds and so 
occasionally we get questions. So we, we invest, for example, in a company that, you know, to be really transparent about it, that is a, a gaming company. And the, the, the structural growth opportunity is in them, this company called Flutter, and the opportunities for them to grow in the US where gaming is becoming legalized. And so the question is, is it right, quote unquote, for you to be investing in a gambling company? Now, our view is that by not investing in that gambling company, we can be, you know, there's no impact either way in terms of the, the social harms of gambling. But by us investing in that company and then having the opportunity to talk to that company, which we did uh, less than a month ago, we can actually drive that company towards a better outcome. The consumer that's concerned about gambling, the instinct is to, to say, I don't want gambling companies in my in the funds that I invest in. But actually, maybe the better impact that they can have through their investments is by investing in a fund that does have gambling companies in the mix, but can actually demonstrate that they use their influence to actually move how that company operates in, and, and operates in a safe way, which we believe that we've done in this case and will continue to do. It's fascinating you bring, bring that up because it, it, it's a conundrum, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, there will be some who say, goodness gracious me, how can on moral and ethical grounds, how can you profit from something that's potentially destructive to society? But on the other hand, you've got to look at it through a commercial lens and look at technologies they're deploying and revenue upsides from those technologies. Yeah. The, the question I ask is that to what extent do the companies value your opinion when you approach them about certain issues? Yeah. So in my previous role, it was much more of a stick that kind of generated the value and the influence that could be attained. So when I was working at Axie, they represent the super funds and collectively they might own 10, 15, 20% of, of an individual ASX listed company. Yep. And so the directors of that company know that you're going to be around hassling them year after year after year. But in, in our case, what we say to those companies, is, first of all, is that we explicitly include how a company performs ESG in our valuation. So we essentially say to them, if you you can demonstrate to us that you perform better on ESG, for example, by having safe gambling metrics in the incentives for management of these companies. If you can demonstrate that to us, then we will essentially apply a high multiple, apply a high valuation to your company. The other thing that we can do is that today there are ESG ratings providers, which increasingly many investors use, and both the decisions around which companies they will and won't invest in, and also in the same way that we do it around the valuation of those companies. And so I think part of what sort of dawned on a lot of companies is that by actually by managing some of these issues well, there is actually something in it for them in terms of being seen to be an, an ESG leader and therefore having essentially a stock which is viewed more valuably by investors. And that's that's happening more and more and we can see it in valuations, especially on the climate change side of things where, say for a utility, the, the generation mix between renewables and fossil fuels does seem to be really driving multiples that these stocks can attract. Yeah, a company, for example, can be a miner can be mining coal, but can still be a responsible company in terms of their ESG processes, can't they? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And again, th there will be obviously some cohort of investors that say, you know, this activity of mining coal is not something that we want to be involved with. And, you know, for the Monroe Climate Change Leaders Fund, because we are investing in climate change solutions for that fund alone, coal mining, it's not something that we would invest in naturally anyway, but it is something that we, we have said that in some revenue thresholds, we won't consider that at all. And we never had anything like that in fund. As you say, like beyond that, there are material ESG issues for a mining company that are absolutely relevant. So a great example would be workplace 
health and safety. So these companies need to, to attract a workforce into a dangerous industry. The ability to attract that workforce depends you know, in large part around safety. So if, if they perform well on safety, they tend to be better operators. They tend to attract the right staff. They don't have um, stoppages when incidents happen and so forth. And so there's a clear link, I think, between an, a different ESG issue like safety and how a company like a coal miner would actually operate. Yes, their production isn't necessarily frequently interrupted through poor practice. Absolutely. Uh, pick a mineral, any, any mineral, pick a commodity. What matters is fluency of process and how sincere they are about protecting their workers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yep, yeah. exactly. So just you're part of the Munro investment team who are growth investors. So just at a really base level, can you take me through your day? W- mm-hmm. What do you look at day to day, week to week, month to month? Yeah, absolutely. So Monroe is, you know, primarily we are obviously an active manager. We have relatively few stocks in the portfolio and stocks that we want to know really well, want to know inside out. And so what I've done since I started is we have uh, six factors which we consider relevant to the characteristics of a good growth company. One of those characteristics is ESG. And so what we do is rather than being reliant on external data providers, there can be often gaps in terms of what they look at and what they don't look at. Again, focused on like what are the actually material issues for each particular company. You know, one thing which I do is help the team essentially analyze each company around their material ESG risks. So to give you one example, we've recently invested in Liberty Formula One. What are the things which are material for Liberty Formula One? So on the environmental and social aspect, one of the things that's important is obviously, again, safety, so driver safety and spectator safety. So we look at the performance of Formula One as a sport over time in terms of that. There have been, unfortunately, cases, including in the recent past where there have been obviously fatalities. And so that is very damaging in terms of individuals and their families, but also in terms of the sort of fan response, the willingness for sponsors for auto OEMs to participate. So that's why it's material. Another issue is the actual countries that they race in. So Formula One, despite its you know, one of its kind of growth levers essentially is to actually globalize. And that does involve in racing in some countries with poor human rights practices. So one example, which actually sort of, again, hit the PNL of Formula One a few years ago was Russia. So they, they had a, re- a race in Russia. Russia's invasion of Ukraine sort of exposed the underlying challenges of a country like Russia. That drove how that company performed. A third issue actually probably might be interesting is climate change. But many people, when they think about climate change, they think about the emissions from driving the cars around and flying the, the whole kit across the whole world. One of the other interesting sort of dynamics from a climate change perspective is the physical risk. So you actually need to have races held outdoors. And if the weather is more volatile, it does actually affect your ability to race. And so actually just this past weekend, there was supposed to be a race in Imola in Italy, which was essentially cancelled because of bad weather. So you can imagine as the risks of climate change become more impactful over the next years and decades, it could actually influence or impact the ability for them to have have races in particular locations in time. That sort of thing would be something that I would spend a lot of my time doing. That the team wants to invest in a company, what are the key ESG drivers of that company? And then trying to understand those and integrate that into our um, valuations. It's really quite interesting the extent to which there's such broad considerations, aren't they? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what I often find is that the hardest part is not not necessarily understanding how well a company performs on a particular topic, but actually coming up with, you know, what are the really most material issues for a particular company? That part is actually quite difficult. The company often gives you their own assessment of what that looks like and they interview various stakeholders as to what those things are, but it can be difficult. And and again, some, some of the sort of off-the-shelf data providers in this area, in our view, do sometimes miss things that are important. Do you think there is an alignment between the expectations of investors and the stewardship of ESG? Do you think investors meet the expectations of the ESG world? I hope I'm putting that question to you the right way. There's people's expectations about how you invest and why you invest and the red flags which come up. Then at the practical level, there's the PM that's got to pick stocks to populate a portfolio. Do you reckon they both meet each other's expectations? Um, How hard is it to get there? I think it can be challenging to get there, but I think this conversation now and, and again, many of the conversations that we have with our investors help to kind of bridge some, some of those gaps. So for example, in our Monroe Climate Change Leaders strategy, we do invest in nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is undeniably a carbon-free source of electricity. That's our, essentially our only criteria, which is, is this company enabling decarbonization? Clearly, we think that companies that use nuclear energy do enable decarbonisation because it's fossil free. But we do have a, occasionally do get questions around issues like nuclear waste, nuclear safety, the ability to use some of that fuel essentially for nuclear weapons. And we have engaged with Constellation Energy, which is the company on these topics. We know we're quite comfortable about it. But I think the answer to your question is hopefully that we can have a dialogue with some of our clients that are concerned about clear energy to talk to them about you know why it's in there. The fact that, again, that we're not just passively buying the stock and just sitting there. We're actively seeking out conversations with those companies to to make sure that we're comfortable with what they're doing on some of the issues and also to make sure that we can hand on heart say to our, our investors that we're actually conscious of these issues and implementing them into our how we do things. Other than the obvious, as we stated from the outset, being tobacco and munitions, can you give me an example of a dialogue you've had with a PM or an analyst about whatever better description, a name, and you might have concerns about their ESG credential? How have you guided that conversation and the outcome of to invest or not to invest? Yeah, so I think for us, generally, it's less of a question of whether we invest or we don't invest, again, because we have relative use exclusions relatively uh, sparingly. Yep, yep. But there have been some cases where, and again, it was actually the PMs that initially came to me to, to do the sort of initial analysis where just the sort of level of underlying ESG types of risks and issues has essentially led us not to pursue particular opportunities. So one of the things that we have been, I suppose, trying to capture in the last six months or so is the China reopening. And so one of the ways to, I guess, play that theme, which we have played, is around luxury goods. Leaving that aside, another option that we were exploring was around casinos in Macau, because as the lockdowns end in China, there's obviously potentially more traffic in casinos in Macau. And so we were looking at one particular name and the PM approached me to say, what do you think about sort of the ESG risks and respect to casinos in Macau? And I mean, probably don't need to go into the, the full details, but you know, my conclusion was essentially that, especially given the kind of different level of comfort that we could get around how things actually operate in a country, in, in, a, in a place like Macau versus other jurisdictions, and that sort of broader overlay around Asian, particularly Chinese stocks from kind of a sovereign government perspective, you know, our feeling was that there are better opportunities 
opportunities for us to pursue. So I feel like in that in that situation, it wasn't a hard exclusion. We, you know, we must never invest in any casinos in Macau. But in, in that particular case, we sort of felt like there were better opportunities with less ESG-related challenges for us to pursue. Yeah. To be clear, your role, you come to the table with a full understanding of the issues. And you also come to the table knowing that if companies are wanting in one or several of these issues, at some point in time, it'll negatively impact their earnings. Yeah, absolutely. Your job is to say, look, have you thought about this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a possible outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And in, and in that case, it's not hard to kind of imagine that future of if it's a US company operating in Macau with a government, you know, where there is a question mark about the enforcement, but gambling in mainland China is not permitted. You sort of wonder over the long term, can we be confident that these companies can operate at such a sort of pristine and clear level that there will never be a kind of government response against some of their practices. And yeah, that was sort of where we landed on that one. Well, it's not necessarily a problem that's unique to China. You no. only have to look at Crown and Star in this country yeah. to see exactly. how bad behaviour can destroy shareholder value. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly so, right. so it, it's a problem that's universal yeah. and not you know, not aligned to any one industry. Yeah. Bad behaviour ultimately catches up with you, ultimately destroys shareholder value, exactly. uh, reputation, so yeah. on and so yeah. forth. Exactly right, exactly right. So without wanting, I don't want to lead you down the path of making self-serving statements, but can you just talk to us about how you believe ESG being an important part of an investment process enhances investor outcomes? Yeah, so I think briefly just to sort of touch on, you know, our view is that integrating ESG is complementary to better investment outcomes. I think there's still a cohort, and maybe if you're very, very heavy on the exclusions, there is some truth to the idea that ESG is somehow at odds, goes across good investment outcomes. Our view is absolutely that ESG integration can improve ESG outcomes. Maybe to give you kind of a concrete example, we obviously invest a lot into the thematic or area of interest of, of climate change. One of the risks, one of the key ESG risks within that theme is around solar and in particular the solar supply chain, much of which goes you know, in the early steps of the solar supply chain into Xinjiang in China, where you know the UN, the US and others have alleged some serious human rights issues, I suppose, you know, to put it mildly. We have seen and we have directly engaged with companies like NextEra Energy, RWE, that are solar developers, just to make sure that, again, both from a sort of a human rights and ESG perspective, but purely from a ability to actually execute on their development pipelines that they're not exposed to the US essentially sanctioning those imports into America. So that's, I suppose, a risk lens of how we integrate ESG and we think we can make better investment decisions. So if we get comfort that these companies aren't going to have their development pipelines jeopardized by using essentially forced labor or alleged forced labor in their supply chain, then that gives us more comfort around that investment. The other thing that it can sometimes lead to is opportunities as well. So that whole discussion you know, led us to think through, well, what are the companies that don't have supply chains that extend to those parts of China, which led us to a company called First Solar. Part of the reason why we invested in First Solar is because essentially they, they have a different process for making solar panels that doesn't essentially rely on the Chinese supply chain at all. And so that's just one example of where we think that carefully thinking through yourself around ESG risks and opportunities can hopefully lead you to better companies, better, better decisions. So in Munro's analysis of engagement with the companies they own, where do you fit in? Do you do this week, for example, we're looking at Apple. Do you do you contribute to this? These are Apple's ESG ticks. These are their crosses. Let's discuss. I know that's a horrible simplification, but is that how you fit in? 
Yeah, exactly. So obviously every stock within our portfolio has a stock champion. The The stock champion is ultimately responsible for making sure that all issues, including ESG issues, are well understood and engaging with those companies. But I, but I assist with that. To go back to that example of Flutter, the, the, the gaming company which we talked about. So Kieran, the stock champion for that company, and he and I together came up with a set of ESG questions that we wanted to ask them about. Safe gambling, what are their goals? How are they implementing this into the new markets that they're entering? How is it put into the management incentive plan, et cetera. And then together we essentially engaged with the company. So he was asking some questions, I was asking some other questions and half that meeting I think was uh, focused on ESG. So in practice, that's that's essentially how we do it. I am personally involved in those discussions. Okay. So if we can just sort of change gears and look at greenwashing, the regulator has been really prominent in Australia, bringing greenwashing to the attention of some product promoters. Where do you see, well, what are your thoughts about greenwashing generally? And then specifically, do you think sometimes that companies are gilding the lily? It's a good question. I mean, I think in terms of the listed companies that we look at, one of the things that hopefully allows us not to be fooled by corporate greenwashing to the extent that it exists is by looking at the underlying sort of performance data. So again, to take the example of safety, which we talked about, a company can have lots of pictures of people wearing hard hats and, you know, high vis and all this sort of stuff. That's all well and good. And they can have many nice looking policies. But really, there is actually a very simple way to measure at least past performance on safety, which is how many injuries did you have divided by the number of hours that you worked, which is your injury frequency rates. And you can have all the most beautiful pictures of people in hard hats and high vis. But if your injury frequency rate is going up, then that's a problem. So that's essentially how we try to get through the, I don't know if it's greenwashing, but you know to get through the, I suppose, the veneer of some of these things to the actual using the underlying data. In terms of the investment industry, I mean, I think it's a good thing that ASIC is focused on this topic. We're very conscious of, again, not misrepresenting ourselves to our clients. So in particular, given that we do have a thematic focus on climate change and we have this particular strategy around climate change leaders, I think it is important for us to be clear about the fact that these aren't quote unquote ESG angels, whatever that means. And there are some companies in there, which might be controversial to some people. So for example, you know, we talked about nuclear energy before. We do have some some of these utilities essentially, which is transitioning. So to take one example, RWE, they have some coal in their coal-based electricity generation in their mix, which they're going to work with the German government to shut down by 2030. But we want to make sure that our you know, prospective investors understand that we're investing in that company because it's the second or third biggest renewables developer. They have this element, but it's disappearing in a very sort of measured way. So yeah, it is something that we have to be ourselves conscious of. And I think continue to develop how we do that over time. But you know, I'm personally comfortable in the things that we say and the things that we don't say, but it's just a matter of making sure people, again, appreciate some of the nuance here, which we've talked about. Yeah. And I think it's important to bring into perspective, we don't live in a perfect world. Getting the perfect ESG score is the exception, not the rule. And it's a matter of what can we live with relative to our representation Correct. That, that matters. And coming back to your point about the regulators' heightened awareness of and surveillance of greenwashing in, in recent times, I absolutely agree with, I'm glad they do it. And it's largely because I come from the standpoint that investors won't give you their capital if they can't trust you. And the industry had all sorts of problems coming out of the Hain Royal Commission. We're still getting over today. Mm-hmm. I think they're largely in the rearview mirror. But once trust becomes an issue, capital will always go where it's best treated. So I think that it doesn't matter whether it's you doing your job in the ESG world or 
me doing my job as a director of a, of a responsible entity. We have to behave with integrity. And the minute that we don't, we're done. Yep, so I, I'm absolutely in favour of a strong regulator, the carrot and the stick. Lastly, how do you monitor a company's statements about their practices through time? Say, for example, companies in their annual report will have their carbon emissions detailed. How, how do you look beyond the annual report to make sure they pass the, the sniff test? I mean, first of all, in terms of how we do our ESG score process, we do review that at least annually. But some of these engagements that I talked about are an opportunity for us to you know, revisit that. So we revisit it essentially on an ad hoc basis. So to give you an example, again, back to this issue of safety, we had a meeting with a company in the sort of waste management industry that's in that's in our fund. We asked them about safety because it seemed like they actually don't disclose like if there were, were any fatalities in their operations. We asked them the question, they basically said, still can't quite understand why, but they said that we don't want to disclose that. And so we'll continue to press them on that topic. But in the meantime, we updated our ESG assessment of that company. We also do monthly portfolio metrics that we, we have by an external source, which can give some information as well. And then I think the other, the other element that's important is obviously to be clear in communicating to our investors as well. So we, we have done a responsible investment report, which we've sent out to, to our clients, and we will update that annually as well. So that's an opportunity, again, in the same way that we want companies to be transparent, we, you know, we should be transparent about what we're doing with our investors and I guess our stakeholders as well. Okay, well, look, Mike, thank you very much for your time today. If I can just make a couple of observations. Thank you very much for work you're doing for the industry as a whole. I think the education of our young, particularly on a subject matter that's new, so much more of finance is, or financial modelling, for example, <laughs> is everywhere. And this is the new frontier. And I think it's remarkable that people from the industry recognise that, recognise the not educating people about this. So to, to give your time to get that ball rolling is really impressive. And from the industry standpoint, thank you very much for your contribution. And equally, I think it's impressive um, for a firm of Munro's size to dedicate a resource with someone as, as senior as you, not only in your industry experience, but also in, in a broader context as well. So I've really enjoyed our conversations. I think going to have a meaningful impact on how Munro think about and implement ESG in their portfolios. And I think it'll have a great impact. So thank you. My pleasure. It's really great to be involved and thanks for your kind words. 